Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Fred Stevens-Smith, co-founder of Rainforest QA, which does quality assurance as a service. How are you doing, Fred? Good, thank you. Excellent. So I just wanted to start with a quick little story about how you and I met, and I think it serves as a neat little pro tip for like how people can find developers, or at least curious developers, I would say. So I don't know how long ago it was exactly or what the post was, but I think you posted on Hacker News because you guys are a YC company, right? Um, yes. So you kind of get this ability to post on Hacker News, job postings kind of in line with Hacker News stories. And I don't remember what the title was, but it was really intriguing. And I just remember at the time, like you had some programming challenge to figure out who you were. And I was like, well, you know, damn, I'm just going to figure it out. Um, <laughs> so I get to like the end of this little challenge and I've got your email address. I think it was maybe like hacking some JavaScript or something like that to get it to work. And you know, just wrote out to you saying, I'm not looking for work, but I just want to know who you are because it's pretty cool that you even did this. <laughs> so how did that work out for you, by the way? Really good. It's still there. It's funny. I'd actually totally forgotten how we met. But yeah, you're right. That is how it was. It was actually super good because we were really worried before we did it that no one would apply and everyone would think we were assholes and whatever. And so we had this combination of like a ton of really terribly shit engineering applicants and secondarily, we were still in, you know, so-called stealth mode. So we didn't want anyone to know that we were YC because we hadn't announced that we'd been funded by YC. So that's why we did all the kind of smoke and mirrors bullshit. But actually, <laughs> it turned out to be amazingly good. We got like almost triple the applicant numbers per posting, if you can believe that, pre and post challenge, right? And so... wow. To be clear, what Josh is talking about, the challenge is just this really, really dumb page. And I can't tell you how to solve it <laughs> because that's the second most Googled thing for Rainforest is solve Rainforest code coding <laughs> challenge, which is kind of hilarious. And some asshole even solved it and put it in a gist. And we're like, come on, guy. Like, really? <laughs> but anyway, it's a really dumb server which sits there and gives you basically 100 follow URLs through JSON. And so basically you request the endpoint, which I can't remember what it is, but it's whatever.json. And then it basically just returns a JSON blob with a key follow and then a URL. And so obviously you go to that URL and then you get another one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like a hundred. So unless you're like a total lunatic, you're not going to do it all by hand. And so it's just a really dumb for loop with a JavaScript get inside. Right. Like a jQuery get or whatever. And so it's like really trivial, but it's fun. Like you said, we make everyone who joins the company do it, including salespeople. Nice. It's fun. And also it screens out people who just can't do web coding. Like we've had a bunch of people who are like, oh, I'm PhD, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, okay, cool. Take our challenge. And they're like, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, if you're going to build a web application, that's kind of table stakes. Um, so yeah. yeah, it was great success for us. Everyone should do it. Also, it's really fun. Whenever I come across those, I also do the challenge kind of like you, Josh. Yeah, yeah I'm funny. tempted to take this challenge right now. I'm just, <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was just kind of like what people would do for Sudoku or something like that. I don't know. I was Precisely. like, I opened my email with like, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in the job, but <laughs> all I care about is this is cool and I want to know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of awesome. All right, well, let's get into things. So I'd like to start off with the definition. Can you explain for us what 
QA, quality assurance testing, actually is? Gosh, yeah. So, I mean, quality assurance at the highest, and look, QA people, don't email me, please. I know this is nuanced and <laughs> and not like you can't compress it into a soundbite or whatever, but for the product owners of the world, QA is finding bugs. And ideally, QA is finding bugs before your customers. So typically within the software world, we think about QA as, as largely happening pre-production. Right. So it's finding bugs. Sorry, that was the answer. Finding bugs. That's what QA is. Okay, well, that makes sense. And it seems that there are a lot of developers at startups who prefer writing automated tests for this sort of thing, which for those of us who don't know what that means, those are just tests written in code, run by a computer that try and prevent these bugs from getting out there, right? So what are kind they... of. I would just uh, clarify your definition a little bit. Sorry sure. for, for jumping in, but it's tests written in code that are pretending to be a user driving your interface. That's Absolutely. what automation is. Yeah. And so what are the main differences then between an automated test and a QA test other than a computer is pretending to be a human and a human is ostensibly being a human? Well, <laughs> I like the use of the word ostensibly. Um, <laughs> well, so QA is the kind of parent, you know, quality assurance. And quality assurance, the actual meaning of that is actually kind of increase quality and ensure that there's quality, right? I mean, it's pretty literal. So there are a ton of different things that one has to do or one should do underneath that that are different attacks to ensure quality, right? Or different approaches to ensure quality. For example, performance testing, load testing is one of them. Penetration testing is also one of them. Exploratory testing is also one of them. Now, in terms of kind of what most people think of as either functional or regression testing, which is basically, right, does the sign up work, right? And then, you know, regressions, which are much kind of deeper functionality testing within the sign up. So like, okay, if I enter mismatching passwords, do I get an error message, like all of that kind of stuff, right? Those are types of functional or regression or sometimes called integration tests. Now you can choose to do those manually by hand, which is kind of what you're referring to. So that's the bad old kind of stereotype of QA, right? The guy sitting in the basements just bashing away at buttons. That's really the kind of integration testing piece. Or you can choose to write code and automate it. And that's typically what people are referring to when they talk about automation. So automation is a kind of functional integration test that is written in code. And the classic other way to do that is to do it by hand. So to actually, you know, bash through the website. And probably most people listening have done or are doing it like that today. That's where we see the majority of new customers, including like very big, very large brand names, they still do it by hand, basically. So for those of us that have automated tests, the ones that are run by a computer, do I still need QA tests, the ones that are run by hand? Yeah, I mean, it's case specific, but probably yes, right? So I think there's a few key things. And I think one thing I should make clear is at Rainforest, we're not like ideologically opposed to automation, not by any means. We just think that it's really overused. And basically, the problem with automation is that automation was built. So and let's be clear, right? When we're talking about automation, we're talking about automated testing, automated integration testing. So don't confuse automation with unit testing, for example, which is also testing in code. Unit testing is a very good idea. Automation is challenging because the problem is you're driving an interface designed to be consumed by a human with a computer and or a machine, I should say. And machines are dumb, right? Machines take instructions and execute them. So 
The problem is, and you can put this in a thought experiment, which is quite an elegant way of explaining it. The problem is, is that essentially, if you want, for example, a human to go and sign up at 10 different websites, what are the instructions you'd give that human? You'd give them the following instructions. Go and sign up at these 10 websites and then a list of URLs, right? Right. If you were to give an automated test those same instructions, you would have to write, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 lines of code for each individual sign-up. Because there is no lingua franca on the web in terms of in the markup, there's no standardized way to define a sign-up form, right? And so what that means is that you have to custom code against your own website. You have to reinvent the wheel every single time, right? And so that's really the problem with automation is that it's just a massive amount of work because it's kind of premised on this idea that the page is rendered on the server and squirted through to the browser and it doesn't change until you refresh the page. But can you think of a single example that exists like that today? You know, like today, all of the page is constantly changing, reacting to HTTP requests and, you know, what the user's doing and changes in the models and all of that kind of funkiness. And so the problem is, is that your automated test is actually really dumb. It's just looking at the XML of the page and saying, does this input exist with ID XYZ? If so, enter this string, then try and submit the form with input XYZ. You see what I'm saying? And so the problem becomes that because this test is very tightly linked to this DOM, and because the DOM is normally like a semi-arbitrary expression of what's actually driving it, right, if you're using a framework underneath, then you just end up with these problems where your sign-up test fails, but it's not because no one can sign up, it's just because the machine is really dumb and your designer changed the ID of the sign-up form, right? So right. the problem with automation is that it's super brittle. And so I think that the really interesting thing is to look at where, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where, you know, the generally accepted best practice is actually not really very good? And I think that's quite a fascinating question, which we could talk about for hours. My high-level take on it is just that as engineers, as programmers, our default is to think, oh, humans are doing something? That's dumb. That's inefficient. Code can do it. <laughs> right. Okay, now that fixes the problem, right? And so you start from that very logical starting point, but you end up at this absolute craziness, like, for example, Salesforce, right, or Adobe, 50% of their software engineers are quality engineers. That means 50% of the people that they are paying to write code never ship a single line of code into production, never generate a single dollar of revenue with their work. Right. And so you start from this first principle that makes a lot of sense, which is, OK, humans are dumb and slow and expensive. Computers are, you know, free. Code is efficient. Great. Let's automate all the things. But, you know, five, ten years down the road, you end up with just these insane workforces where their only job is to just maintain and keep these automated tests up to date. And so I think the thing that's worth asking yourself as, as someone who's building a technology organization, the thing that's worth asking yourself is, is that a good use of our resources, you know, five years down the road? Do we really want to build out one of our core competencies of being able to write and maintain automated tests at scale? Like, is that really what differentiates you from your competition? And of course, the answer is no, of course it's not. Right, <laughs> um, right. That's just like a cost of doing business. It's insurance, right? And so we think that that status quo is insane. And that's kind of why we started Rainforest, actually. So I want to um, go back a little bit. I don't want to spend too much time on either of these two questions, but I do need to ask them because I know our audience is probably going like, what the hell just happened? But, so <laughs> you used the word uh, unit tests. How exactly, you know, when we're talking about these automated tests, what is the difference between an integration test and a unit test then? Great question. So a unit test is kind of what it sounds like. It tests a unit, 
And so the best way to think about this, if you visualize, you know, a very simple application, you're going to have a bunch of functions within the application, right? And so you're going to have a function that does sign up. And that function is probably going to call, for example, a function that tests is the user's email properly formatted, right? right? So unit testing is the idea that you should test each of these functions in isolation as an individual unit. So a unit test for our example would be you would have a test which basically calls the check email is valid function with one valid email and then five like weird, crazy non-emails and then Basically, the test is, does the function return the correct response? Right. And so rather than testing the application as a whole, you isolate individual elements and then test those on their own. Now, this has come under some scrutiny, this process, because basically unit testing was popularized with TDD through the Rails community, specifically through David Hanemeyer Hansen. And he came out last year and was kind of like, yeah, unit testing is a bit stupid. So, you know, what's happened is everyone's like, oh, well, as long as I unit test everything, then everything's fine. But the problem with that is that every single function in your application can work as designed and the application can still fail, right? There are right. still tons of other places where bugs come and those tons of other places where bugs come are the edges in between the functions. So to test how the application actually works, you have to do what's called an integration test. And again, it's kind of what it says on the tin, right? It's how does the entire application integrate together? So that can be either, you know, all of the functions that make up the sign up. That can be the front end code that powers the sign up form and then the back end code that digests that sign up form and then the database which stores that sign up form. It can even include when you get really sophisticated CDNs and load balancers and all other kinds of funky stuff. The main point is you want to test your application in as close to a real world, i.e. in as close to a setting that your customer uses it as possible. The kind of challenge with unit testing is that it's not realistic, right? You're verifying the integrity of one function in isolation of everything else, and your app never works like that. Right. That makes sense. And actually, yep. we had a, an interview with Sandy Metz. So those listeners who haven't heard that yet, please go listen to that because she talks a little bit about object-oriented programming, which at least has some similarities to what we're discussing here. You've got all these messages being passed between different things. We discussed it as being like, choose your own adventure book. So the choose your own adventure book, you're seeing these jumping off points between one page and another. These are these edges between the application that Fred is talking about right here. I actually, there's one other term that you used, which was DOM, which stands for document object model. You can clarify for me, Fred, whether or not I'm explaining this correctly. But if you look at a web page as a document and think of it as, you know, just a page in this giant book that is the internet, that document is described in certain ways. And the way that we describe that is what we refer to as the DOM. So when you're saying that these things are brittle and they change often, I mean, that's because realistically, we've got designers and developers and, you know, marketing people all kind of changing the same thing so often that the things that you were looking for, so maybe it's an email input has just changed completely. Is that, am I understanding you correctly on that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. So it's as though you have a button and the automated test is designed to click on that button as part of the test. The developer changes the name of the button, and now it's not clicking on the button anymore, so your test is no longer correct. Right. Exactly. Yes. And if you think about this philosophically, and this may go over your head if you're just hearing about the DOM, but I think it's probably interesting for people who spend a lot of time thinking about this, which I assume is some of the audience. 
you know, I think the interesting thing is that the visual representation, it's only somewhat semi-linked to the actual underlying code that represents it, which is what this DOM that we're talking about is. So button, to use your example, a button can look like whatever the designer wants it to look like. Right. right? And so the thing is, is that when you tell someone to go and sign up to a website, they're doing two things, right? That human is both interpreting your instructions, right? So what does sign up mean? Well, it means create an account. Have I done that before? Yes. Do I know what's expected of me? Probably yes. I probably have to fill in some details and click something. Okay, cool. And then they're also at the same time grokking, and I love that word grok, which is like this weird kind of computer science nerd word. But grok is basically like understand. But I think it has a bit more meaning. And the other thing that the human is doing is grokking the interface that's being presented to them. And they're grokking that because they're a human and the interface was designed for them. So there's a button. And guess what? It has an affordance. It looks like a real button. You know, there's a form. It has some drop shadows. So it feels like it's set in from the page. So you understand, oh, I can input things into there, right? So all of these things are these little micro pattern recognitions that your brain is making in real time. And all of those things are impossible for a machine to do. So that's really, I think, the most kind of concrete example of what kind of automated testing is versus humans. With humans, you have access to that massive pattern matching, pattern recognition software that is the brain, and that enormous data set, which is your entire life thus far. Whereas with a machine, you have to tell it all of that. Right. We write a lot of automated tests, but we find that that does not cover everything. There's always cases that bugs that turn up that the automated test didn't catch. Absolutely. So who then is writing these QA tests? Who should be writing the QA tests? This is a time on a debate, basically. But what we see in the industry today, and a big part of what we're trying to push for as a company, is more and more of the product team being involved in QA. And so the really forward-thinking kind of QA thought leader type people, the one common thing that they all seem to agree on is that QA has to be a part of the process much, much earlier than what is traditional, right? So traditionally, you've seen the feature development as like a kind of self-contained entity. And when that entity is done with the feature, it kind of throws it over the wall to QA, and then they QA it, and then it gets released, right? So that's the kind of paradigm that exists today. That's what all the Fortune 500 companies are doing. That's what the vast majority of big tech companies do. And the problem with that, as you can imagine, is it's really, really ineffective because because the QA team and because that kind of testing, breaking mindset isn't involved from the beginning, you end up with just like these massive amount of big issues which could have been solved very trivially if they'd been caught much earlier. So the kind of QA mindset that we advocate and I think is really kind of an agreement amongst the industry that this is where we should be going is having QA involved much, much earlier alongside your developers, alongside your designers, alongside your product managers, even to the point of actually helping to define the requirements with the product manager for the feature that is to be built. A really good QA person can actually start to QA the requirements themselves, right? And start to anticipate, oh, this is typically produces these kind of edge cases. Oh, well, this seems a little bit dangerous because of X, Y, Z that I've seen in the past, etc. So it's not a nice, clean answer to your question, because the reality is, is that everyone in the company should be doing QA and everyone is. You know, you start with your two, three-person startup in a garage. At that very early stage, where you're kind of three hackers just working on an idea, you're still doing QA, right? Like every time you ship, you're still like, make sure X, Y, Z works, you know? And right. so 
everyone does QA all the time. I think the question is, you know, what's the most effective, most efficient way to do it for companies that are trying to emphasize fast movement? And our take on that is that it should be something that is driven and owned by the product manager, and it should be deeply, deeply integrated into the product planning process. The thing that we've seen our most successful customers doing, and we've actually started doing it ourselves, is using the tests as kind of documentation. So tests kind of equal documentation and documentation kind of equals tests because a really good test or at least a really good kind of happy path test essentially describes how the user should be able to use the feature and then you test against that description so what we see really works great is when the pm owns that and then drives that through her whole team and basically ensures that everyone is thinking about quality the entire way. And so then when you get to the final point where everyone's like, okay, this feature is ready, you have a much less painful process, right? Because you've been thinking about it the whole time versus if you haven't thought about QA at all and you've just been focused on shipping and then you get just before shipping, you're like, okay, time to think about QA. It's pretty obvious that that is not going to be an optimal kind of outcome. So that's a really long and messy non-answer to your question. Josh. No, no, that's a that's a perfect answer. And actually, I mean, I, I'm kind of wondering then, you know, if I'm somebody who is super lean and agile and whatever the heck you want to describe it as, and all I'm thinking about is building and shipping and you know just getting product out there, and I'm in this mindset of building things up and not breaking them down. How do I shift my perspective then from break everything, you know? Yeah, I think it's about having a smart balance. You know, I think the the one thing that we've learned as well is that anyone who's kind of too absolutist or has too many answers about QA doesn't really know what they're talking about, right? Because everything is unique per situation. What I would say is that there's a couple of core things. The, the first thing is to really understand that the role that QA and, and more broadly, the kind of necessity of focusing on quality is totally context dependent. And I think the most important variable that defines how much you should focus on quality is actually what stage the company's at. So if you're at a very, very early stage, you know, it really doesn't matter if things don't work. <laughs> at that point, your only focus is getting users and speaking to those users and trying to understand, have you built something that's useful, you know? And so for the majority of people building web applications, that is really the main focus. And things can be really crappy, right? As long as there's a quantum of utility, you know, half of the functionality can fail. Your app can really be shitty from a quality perspective. If it's doing something 10x better than the previous way to do it, people will use it. But drilling a bit further into this whole kind of you know, it's all relative and all context dependent. I think the best example of that is mobile, right? Because native mobile, for whatever reason, the consumer expects a huge level of polish. And for them to even consider using an app, it needs to be really, really polished, really slick. It needs to work really well. So what we see is that we see a massive, massive demand for QA very early on with native mobile companies because basically their consumer has been trained that if it's not really polished and Apple and beautiful, it sucks. And so there's not like the same notion as there is within, for example, enterprise software where it's like if the quantum of utility is there, you know, the user experience, the polish, the kind of functionality, that all can come kind of second as long as just the core problem being solved is done in a very kind of convincing way. Earlier, you mentioned that it could be problematic to put QA to the last minute. Could you unpack that a bit by giving some examples, maybe? Sure. So I think it's more like it's something that you can kind of realize through a thought experiment, right? If you think about what good QA people do, 
good QA people basically act as the first customer, right? They're the customer before the customer. And as everyone who's built any app knows, how you envisage your customers using your app and how your, your customers actually end up using your app are two almost totally different things. <laughs> and they tend to have very little correlation with each other. So I think the interesting thing and the useful thing about the QA mindset, you know, is that these people are trained in thinking through the edges, right? So thinking about all of the weird things that a customer is going to try and do with your application and, you know, anticipating those things and then giving you feedback on, oh, okay, the customer might try this. What's going to be the response of the sign-up form if the customer tries to write in Chinese, right? What's going to be the response of the sign-up form if the customer tries to enter mismatching passwords? What's going to be the response of the sign-up form if the customer comes in a mobile browser that's too narrow to actually see the button on the right? You know, so these are just very basic things, very trivial examples, but these are all things that we tend to not focus on as developers. And I think the reason is, is that as a developer, you're focused on building the kind of dream that you have, right? You have this dream of this kind of feature, you know, what this particular feature is going to look like, what the whole product's going to feel like, what this one little flow is going to look like. You have that dream already. You have that vision in your mind, right? And that's the artistry of coding and of programming is that you make that dream real. That's why we see ourselves as creatives. But I think the QA mindset is pretty different, right? Which is more like I see myself as like a frontline user. And before there's any real users in this application, I represent these users and I make sure that they're heard. And so, you know, I think if you think through it like that, if you don't involve that user from very early on in the process, you're going to build something that the users don't like, right? And so a great analogy is probably the kind of lean startup movement, which is rather than build a big monolithic thing, which you don't know if anyone wants and then shipping it and then crossing your fingers and hoping people want to pay you for it. What you do is you build a tiny, tiny thing. In fact, normally you don't even build anything. You just build a landing page and then you gauge whether people are interested and excited in the simplest, fastest way possible. And I think that this is very analogous, right? You know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, rather than wait until the whole thing is done before showing it to a user and then saying, oh, this user doesn't understand anything because it's unclear and all of this stuff is broken and they want to use it like this and they're trying to do this with the interface and that doesn't work. You know, rather than do that right at the end after you've done all of your code and everything is complete, doesn't it make more sense to do that at the beginning, you know, and do that all the way through? And so I think that's the kind of really good analogy to that is that lean startup movement, which is, you know, again, like, let's get the customer involved as early as possible. Let's do as little work as possible to figure out, is this going to be useful? Does this have a quantum of utility? And then let's invest where we see that customers find value. And I think that having access to that kind of pre-customer is really the beauty, really the benefit of having QA involved from the kind of beginning of the feature development process. Absolutely. And I think it was Steve Blank that said your product never s survives first contact with customers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And this is, you know, part of where QA gets their kind of shitty reputation. That's kind of, you could say the same thing for an engineer saying that about QA, right? Your code never withstands the first contact with the QA. So you said then um, you had a couple of different things that you've talked about that I kind of want to tie together because you mentioned earlier the happy path that customers can take. And you've also talked about this lean startup movement and trying not to spec everything out before you even know what it is that you're trying to build. So given that QA needs to start early and this happy path, which just to define is really 
you know, from start to finish, what does, you know, a user end up getting out of your application? So they hit the landing page and they've achieved the thing that you wanted to solve for them. You know, you've solved their pain. So given that, how thorough do our tests really need to be then? I mean, and that's a great question, right? And asking that question means you're already thinking in the right way about it, right? As soon as you start thinking in relative terms, context-dependent terms, you're already winning. So, yeah, it's a great question. And that completely depends on what stage is your company at, right? If you're Salesforce and you have, you know, 100 million users or whatever they have, or if you're Facebook and you have 100 million users or a billion users or whatever craziness they have right now, you know, if you ship a sign-up form that doesn't work, well, guess what? You've just stopped... <laughs> whatever it is, 100,000 users an hour actually getting on Facebook and furthering your cause of connecting the world, right? So shipping a bug at Facebook scale is pretty catastrophic, right? When we started engaging with a very, very well-known Bay Area startup, who I won't name, and they found out they were in the middle of a push to China, and their China push was going really, really bad, and they couldn't work out why. And so at the same time, they were running a POC, a proof-of-concept trial with Rainforest, and so one of those things we had, one of the things we did was test their sign-up, of course. And we tested their sign-up in all of the versions of Internet Explorer known to man. And in Internet Explorer 7 and 8, their sign-up form did not work. Oh, wow. And guess what browser all of China uses? <laughs> right, right. And I was just going to say that because I know full well where the statistics are coming from for those browsers. For anybody right. that's trying to figure out, like, why do I have IE8 hitting my site when I don't know anybody that personally right. uses it? Exactly, exactly. I think for a company that's at that scale, you know, releasing a bug can be catastrophic, you know? I mean, you're really going to start actually losing significant revenue. You're going to start damaging your brand significantly. Like, you have to be really, really careful about what you ship into production, right? Right. For tiny company X, a YC company, one of the startups that's probably listening to this, you know, us, you guys, the reality is, is that shipping a bug, while it's going to be painful, is probably not actually going to be the end of the world. You know what I mean? And so essentially how much time and energy you invest into your QA efforts it should be completely commensurate with that and should be derived from what would be the actual cost of shipping a bug. And so that's how I'd make that decision. So it really depends. You know, if you're an early stage guy, you can probably kind of fly by the seat of your pants a little bit. Again, it's about priorities. And, you know, for Salesforce or for Facebook, their number one priority is like, don't shit up for our existing users, you know? Can't it be time consuming to test things by hand? I mean, it can prevent these bugs, but what do you do about the cost, uh, the time it takes to test? You use Rainforest. <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, that is kind of what you do, like, as in that's kind of what we do. But no, you know, it's... Well, it's, well it's, actually, I, I kind of want to dive into that then, because I think we came into this conversation a little skeptical, honestly. You know, like, we're developers who do these automated tests, and, you know, we never really kind of understood that some of the things that we were doing when we go off and we get, like, prepare a push for production, and we have this, like, manual testing checklist that just kind of never became obvious to us in the same way that, you know, maybe it's obvious to you right now. Like, it doesn't seem like we were doing QA in the traditional sense. I've never thought of myself as a QA person. And yet it's been happening. I mean, it happens like we consistently end up telling our clients, make sure that you get enough people on here testing this. We're putting it on staging. Please, please test, test, test. We right. give them a checklist for it. So I am actually very curious about what you're doing and how that fits into the puzzle here. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me give you the kind of quick elevator pitch and then we can get into whatever you guys find interesting. So 
basically what we do is we do QA as a service. You can think of us kind of like an on-demand QA team, you know, just like with Heroku or AWS, you consume server uh, resources on demand. In other words, you don't have 10 big servers sitting in your office. You have a virtual server. And when you hit Hacker News, you, you know, Heroku or AWS or whoever spins up a bunch more servers for you based on demand, right? So they're on-demand resources. We do the same thing for QA, right? So the, exactly the same paradigm applies. Previously, you would have, you know, 5, 10, 50, 1,000 QA dudes sitting in a room somewhere, and they'd be twiddling their thumbs, and then your developers want to do a release, and now these 10, 50, 1,000 QA dudes, you know, swarm over the website following these test plans, and then get back to you at the end of that saying, hey, yeah, it looks good, you can release. So that's like kind of how things work today in the QA world. And it's very similar to how kind of servers and hardware was pre-Heroku, pre-infrastructure as a service. So what we do is we say, hey, look, this is kind of silly, right? Like there is a lot of value to having humans doing QA for you, right? For all the reasons that we talked about before. However, it's a real pain to hire and manage and maintain humans, right? Like you do not want to have to hire these guys and manage them and incentivize them and keep them happy and everything if you don't have to. And, you know, to some people that sounds very dystopian, but what I would say to those people is the reality of this future world of software that we are moving towards is that every company is going to be a software company, right? And in that world where every company is a software company, how do you define competitiveness? You define your comparative advantage by what you are amazing at that no one else is amazing at. Now, the question then becomes, well, how do you figure that out and how do you put as much energy as possible in this future world into relentlessly getting better at that one thing that you're amazing at, right? So, for example, Salesforce, the one thing that they're amazing at is maintaining contact data, right? That's what they're really good at. And so they just obsessively focus on that. Everything that they do is about making that better, right? What's Google amazing at? Google's amazing at finding things. So what do they do? Everything they do is about getting more data more sources of data, smarter context, all of that to get better at finding things. They relentlessly focus on their competitive advantage. So the reality is for 95% of people, QA is not a competitive advantage, right? And so given that that's the case, it doesn't make sense to have it in-house. And so basically we're on-demand QA team. Um, well, and I mean, honestly, yeah. actually, so I'm, I start to sound like a broken record about this a lot lately. And so I'm giving sort of the same mini speech all the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I hate to be the host that's just going to agree with you and not challenge you on this, but no, that's great. I, I'm going to be because every time that I hear somebody talking about the net ops that they're doing or DevOps that they're doing and, you know, not using a platform to do it of some sort. And I mean, I understand that there's varying levels of complexity there. There's a range of options in between like, have your own servers inside of your room somewhere and sure. have Heroku. But that said, if your competitive advantage is not building a platform as a service, don't build a platform as a service, right? It doesn't right. make any sense to me. And I feel like I'm doing the Heroku sales team a favor every time I make this argument. But I mean, I just, I can't fundamentally argue that the clients when they're so resource constrained that this is not the focus that you need right now. It just is not especially at the level that we're at. Again, maybe once you're like Facebook size and you can have like colo space all over the world, you know, do whatever it is that floats your boat. I don't know what makes your shareholders happy. I I'm not in that game right now. So yeah, I think this makes perfect sense. And I think it's very also related to the direction that we're going as a kind of global economy. You know, I really do. 
the fascinating thing with software and the thing that like really, really irks people who aren't in software or don't really understand software is that one can literally create value out of nothing, right? I mean, nothing is relative. It's someone's writing code, but there is no limit to what you can charge to basically for someone to rent access to a couple thousand lines of code on a server somewhere, right? Right. Like that's really the fundamentally what we're talking about here, you know? And I love explaining this to friends outside of the tech world. And I always use the Walmart example, right? So Walmart, when they opened, and this is what's fundamentally different about software from every other kind of business model. When Walmart opens, they have one cashier, right? And that cashier can serve 10 people per hour. And that's awesome. Now they want to serve 20 people per hour because then they make more money. So what do they do? They have to get another cashier. Okay, that's fine. Great. But now you want to serve 100,000 people an hour. Well, I'm not going to do the math, but you see where this is going. (laughs) You can only ever scale linearly with your inputs. And so the fascinating thing about software is that one developer would be capable of building a checkout flow, right? The equivalent to the cashier, the checkout flow that can serve infinite humans, And any correlation between input and output is arbitrary, basically. And so what that means is that you can, and we are, right? You can create billion-dollar value companies, as in a company that's actually generating a billion dollars of value in our economy today, right? You can create companies like that with 10 people. (laughs) And so that is software. You know, and so gone are the days when it was like, let's just like assemble this giant machine, which produces widgets. You know, that's not a thing anymore. It's much more about, can we find the smartest people, you know, in the world who think about this one particular problem and has a unique take that nobody else has? In other words, the kind of competitiveness of a company comes much more about a few star individuals and becomes much less about, oh, we have a 100,000 cashiers who are all trained how to take cash. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that to draw kind of a popular analogy, like, or to look at some examples of this, Johnny Ive is a great example of this, right? And Apple. Apple has 20 core industrial designers. <laughs> 20 people define what Apple products look and feel like. And to be clear what that means, 74 million iPhone 6s were sold in Q4 of last year. <laughs> And 20 people designed those. (laughs) So when you have this delinking of inputs and outputs, what you end up with is you end up with a real relentless focus on human talent. And what that means is that your company becomes about retaining the best possible talent and hiring the best possible talent. And so, you know, in that context, all you want to focus on is that and everything else that can be done by someone else, let them do it. You know, why do it yourself if it's not related to that core competency, right? And so, you know, you could make a bad argument that, for example, Apple should fire everyone, just do everything on spec through Chinese factories and just have a design team. You know, one can imagine a future massive consumer hardware brand that is actually that, right? Once production of these things becomes commoditized, you end up with design being the sole differentiator. And, you know, you really are seeing that today in the consumer hardware space. I mean, look at every single person that has copied the iPhone, which is every brand that exists. So, I think maybe I've got a little bit further away from where we started the question, but I think that it's really, really crucial to also factor in the kind of change that is coming to how we work based on the dominance of software. And I think the final piece to that is just recognizing that the majority of companies today, even the large, super successful software companies, the majority of those companies are basically following working paradigms that were developed by like Ford 200 years ago. Right. 
it seems like a fundamental tension has arisen here in what we've talked about and that you talked about QA as something that the entire team owns sort of from the beginning. And yet we talk about sort of the specialization of somebody else that can handle this thing. So is there a tension between those two or how do you see managing needing to own QA, needing to own, you know, testing, needing to own product development, all these other things that we talk about a team needing to have. And yet, you know, ensuring that you're not getting distracted by building, you know, the best QA team in the world. Right. Yeah. So, no, it's a great question. So, personally, I think there isn't a fundamental tension between those two things. And I think it all hinges around, basically, what drives value for your customers, right? So, in other words, a high-quality experience does actually drive value to your customers. So, the end of QA does drive value, right? The end is stopping bugs hitting production, right? The traditional means to that end has been build a big QA team. Now, does the existence of a QA team inside your company drive value to your customers? No, right? It doesn't. It doesn't make any difference. If anything, it decreases value because it uses up scarce resources that could be used somewhere else, i.e. in improving the product. So I think the key is to understand the, the distinction between the, the means and the ends, right? And so I think what we say and the way the kind of view of the world we have is QA has to be done. You're always going to have to test your stuff. And the people that should own that testing right, are the people who are building the stuff. But that doesn't mean that the people who own that testing are also the people who do the testing, right? I can define a test plan without ever actually testing that test plan myself. And that's really our approach, right? The PM, the team, they own the test plan, but they never do any testing themselves. We right. have 50,000 testers all over the world that do that testing for them when they click the button. Right. And so I think that's the key differentiator there. There is absolutely value in the product team owning how that testing gets done and what gets tested. But we don't see any innate value in the team actually executing those tests themselves. And that's the real difference. Okay. I think I understand. I mean, if I were to draw an analogy then between what we're doing with this podcast right now, I mean, we own the podcast. It's not as though, you know, I'm expecting somebody else to brainstorm the ideas and, you know, really run the interview. Venkat and I are the hosts of Talking Code. But at the same time, I don't expect 100% of the production of the podcast to be me, right? I don't want to handle scheduling. That's Precisely. not the thing that I'm good at. I don't want to handle editing the audio. That's going to be a waste of my time. I'm not going to be able to think of good questions to ask you if I'm sitting there trying to edit a podcast. And like you said, the end result still matters. It's not as though making sure that the ums and the likes and whatever it is that I said in this podcast don't get edited out or that we don't end up hearing, you know, strange background noise or something that still matters. <laughs> you know, I want to ensure that the listeners get the quality out of it that they're expecting, but yes. I don't think it is beneficial for me or Venkat to be focused on that. Right, personally. exactly. And to really bring it in line as an analogy, right? It's also clearly not beneficial for your listeners for you to have to care about that. Like in the sense that there is no innate value in you doing your own editing, right? right. Like there's absolutely none. And, and just like with the QA example, you could probably argue there's a, the opposite. There's like actual destruction of value in you doing the editing because you have less time to think about the questions you're going to ask, right? So, so right. yeah, that's a very good analogy. I think we didn't think about this as QA at the time, but when we are talking to the product manager, before that feature even gets built, we end up having like the test cases. And 
Right. We're not executing those tests at the time, but it's forcing us to think about how the product works before we actually go build the thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think the key is, it's like with everything. If there's a guiding principle when you're building something, you have to consider that guiding principle from the start. And so if, for example, you were going to build a distributed, you know, fault-tolerant, globally-architected system, you wouldn't build the system on your local box against a, a local instance of Rails and then at the end be like, all right, now let's make this global and fault-tolerant. <laughs> you know what I mean? You would design that from yeah. the ground up. You would design that from first principles, right? It would be insane to do anything else. And I think that it's kind of the same thing. It's, as you just said, you're already thinking at the beginning of planning out a feature, how is this going to work? And so you're already making judgment calls that will impact quality later on. And so to us, it seems sensible to actually explicitly start thinking about quality as soon as you're implicitly thinking about quality. All right. Well, thank you so much, Fred. This has been really insightful. So tell us, where can we keep up with you online? RainforestQA.com is where you should go. You should not follow me on Twitter because my Twitter is extremely unprofessional <laughs> and stupid. I don't really get, as multiple friends have told me, you don't get Twitter and I really don't. I just uh, like, like, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so I won't rant on about that. But no, you can follow me on Twitter if you so desire. I'm Fredsters underscore S, F-R-E-D-S-T-E-R-S underscore S. And we're obviously at Rainforest QA. And the one other thing I would say is that we have a weekly testing workshop every Thursday at 9th and Folsom in San Francisco. And basically from 2 to 5 p.m., a bunch of QA nerds get together and talk about testing. And, you know, we help people with Rainforest. We help people with other things, setting up CI, defining automated test plans, all kinds of craziness. If you have additional questions about how do we do testing as a business owner, how can I really make a decent kind of trade-off? You know, all of the stuff that we've been talking about, which is thinking about this smartly and context-dependent, then you should definitely come along to that because that's kind of the point of that. So, yeah. Excellent. That sounds great. Make sure next time I'm in the Bay Area to go check that out, actually. Yeah, you totally should. And also, we have a meetup, but I'll stop plugging our stuff. Just rainforestgray.com. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help. <laughs>